Uh, if you were here Wednesday night, tell me one of the things that you lose, one of the cost that you lose when you're not walking close to God. Say again. Fellowship. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with one another. Joy. Amen. Fellowship with one another. Happiness. Woo. Blessings. All of those things. In First John chapter 2, verse 1, John addresses little children. And he was actually talking to adults. Okay? You say, wait a minute. Yeah, when you get John's age, everybody's a kid to you. <laughs> okay? John's very close to his 90s. Okay? He's in his... Up in his 80s. And so he writes and says, my little children. He's writing to people in churches that that he pastored. When he lived in uh, Ephesus, uh, with uh, he took Jesus' mother, Mary, with him to Ephesus, put her in a house. And then he pastored the church at Ephesus, the church at Laodicea, the church at uh, uh, Philadelphia, I think. Any others? Five no, seven churches in that uh, in, a, in a circle uh, in western Turkey and, that he pastored. And uh, he, as soon as he was able, he appointed men in those churches to be pastors. And then he was kind of like the overseer. Uh, and uh, uh, But uh, he, he wrote in the book of Revelation to those seven churches. And he's writing here to the people in those churches. And he says to them, my little children... These things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now let's pause right there just for a minute, because I'm going to camp out here for a few minutes, and we're going to talk about this. The propitiation uh, is from a Hebrew word. Of course, it's from the Greek here in the New Testament, but uh, the, uh, it means the mercy seat, the place of mercy. And in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it was the, uh, the covering for the Ark of the Covenant, the lid, was made out of a solid piece of gold. Now, it was about the size of a coffee table, the Ark was, okay? So uh, the lid was made out of a piece of gold, single sheet of gold, and beaten out of it were these two cherubims who came up and their arm, their wings stretched up and touched up over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. If you ever needed to get in the Ark, you could grab the angels and just pick up the whole lid. Absolutely priceless. I mean, you can't imagine how much that amount of gold would be worth today. Billions of dollars. And they put this on this box that's covered with pure gold. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the two tablets of stone uh, that uh, God wrote on are in this box. And a pot of manna is in this box. And Aaron's rod that budded was either in the Ark or beside the Ark. You say, what do you mean Aaron's rod that budded? Aaron had a staff that he used. It was made from an almond tree. Almond tree is like a peach tree, okay? So where a, 
I don't know that it was a real long staff, you know. <laughs> I'm sure I think it was kind of a short one. But in the uh, in the Old Testament, it records that when people began to complain and began to say, "Who made Aaron the chief priest? Who, who you know, how come he gets to be leader?" Uh, Moses said, "Okay, bring your bring your rods, your staffs. Everybody, bring one." And they set them outside the Ark of the Covenant. I'm mean, excuse me, outside of the Old Testament tabernacle. And they came back the next day, and everybody's stick is still sitting there. And Aaron's has leafed out, produced flowers, and has ripe almonds hanging on it overnight. And so they put that rod aside. That was the symbol of God's ordaining Aaron to be the high priest rather than any of the other children of Levi. Well, these are all in the Ark of the Covenant. This table of, uh, this uh, covering, this mercy seat, every year, once a year, the high priest kills a lamb, takes the blood, and walks backwards into the Ark of the Covenant, first with a censer of, uh, a, a censer of incense, that's smoking, and, and, and he walks in with that, and then he backs in with this bowl of blood, and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat to, for his own sin. Then he goes back out and makes a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He puts his hand on the head of one sheep and confesses the sins of the people on that sheep, and they lead that sheep off into the wilderness and turn him loose. He's called the scapegoat. Okay, you know what a scapegoat is? It's somebody who takes the place of the guy who really did it. You know, somebody who gets tagged with somebody else's sin. Well, that's the scapegoat. They take the other lamb and they sacrifice it, cut its throat, catch the blood in a bowl, and the high priest goes back in and he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. And God accepts that sprinkling of blood as the interest payment on the sin debt for the Jews. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle in the Old Testament was made after the model. It was a model of the tabernacle in heaven that God showed Moses. Moses duplicates it or does his best to duplicate it here on the earth. And it tells us that when Jesus died as the once and for all sacrifice, he took his own blood and carried it into the Holy of Holies in heaven and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And so when it says here that he is the propitiation, he is the mercy seat, the sin covering and the place where sin is covered uh, The place where uh, the blood is poured out and where mercy is obtained. Okay? That's what he's saying. He's saying, my little children, I write, these things write I unto you that you sin not. I don't want you to sin. Because when you sin, you lose your joy. When you sin, you lose fellowship with God. When you sin, you lose fellowship with fellow believers. And the world, while there's pleasure in sin for a season, it's just a pretty short season. 
And pretty soon you've discovered that your life's a mess and, and you're, you're, you're pretty much of a failure and it's not all that you hoped it would be. And then what are you going to do? And so John says, I'm warning you about all these things. And at the end of chapter 1, he says, now, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar or we call God a liar and his word is not in us. So we also end up losing the word of God. I mean, what little scripture we know is is buried it's pushed aside and we don't remember it anymore his words are not in us my little children these things write i unto you that you sin not i don't want you to lose your joy i don't want you to lose fellowship i don't want you to lose this uh, this uh, recognition of what's true and what's false this discernment you lose discernment when you live in sin I don't want you to do that. So I'm writing to you that you sin not. And if any man sins, that if is not in case somebody does. It's since you're going to. Okay? Since you're going to sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now picture this. An advocate, that's a legal term. It's an attorney. It's an attorney for the defense. Okay? It, the prosecution or the prosecutor is Satan himself. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he goes before God every time you see him. And he says, God, did you see that? Like, duh. Of course he sees it. He sees everything. You can't hide from God. You can't hide sin from God. God sees everything. And Satan says, did you see that? Your word says that the wages of sin is death. You ought to kill him. Go ahead. Kill him now. I'm asking for a conviction for a death sentence because what he just did. But I have an advocate who steps forward and says, Father, you gave him to me. And not I'm not about to lose him. Or I'm not about to lose her. I shed my blood for them. He stands convicted. No question about his guilt. But I'm saying that the sentence has already been passed. And the punishment has already been made. He's mine. And God the Father says, case dismissed. Wow. We have an advocate with the Father. And he names the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, that's what's so incredible about this. The, the person who took my punishment, the person who bore my sin and, and underwent the sentence of death for me, is righteous. Absolutely no reason why he should die. So obviously he died in my place. He stepped forward and died for me. And he stepped forward and died for you. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
And the truth is, if you're going to court, it's always nice when your attorney is the judge's son. <laughs> okay? His father may not cut him any slack. God to the Father doesn't cut Jesus any slack. But they're one. I mean, they're one. And so when Jesus says, I paid for that sin, God the Father says, I remember. This sin's taken care of, Satan. Case dismissed. Wow. How sweet it is. We have this advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the place where mercy is extended. But more than that, he's the blood that's sprinkled on that mercy seat to cover our sin. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's very comforting to me because when a small child dies, I don't ever have to wonder where they are. Okay? If they have not reached the age of accountability, if they've not come to the point where they know what sin is and they know that they need a Savior, then they are protected. When David's baby died, two years old, David goes to bed when the baby gets sick and he won't eat and he doesn't sleep and he lays in bed and he cries out to God day after day after day after day after day after day after day. And finally the servants find out that the baby has actually died and they're whispering and walking around softly not wanting to disturb and not knowing how David's going to react. I mean, look how, look how he acted when the baby was just sick. What's he going to do now? Throw himself off the wall of the temple? There wasn't a temple then. Throw himself off the wall of his house? You know, commit suicide? Jump off the high plate? What's he going to do? They didn't know. So they were a little bit concerned. And David perceives by the fact that they're creeping around, being so quiet, that something has changed. And he asked them, point blank, is the baby dead? And they said, yes, it is. And he gets up, takes a bath, washes his face, combs his hair, puts on clean clothes, and goes to the tabernacle to worship. Now, when David became king, the tabernacle was at Shiloh, the Old Testament tabernacle. The altar was there. The bronze labor was there. Everything was there but the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was down in the woods South East Israel, because the Philistines had captured it under the reign of uh, other the, yeah the reign under the time during the time when Eli was high priest, and they kept it for several months until they realized that all the diseases and all the trouble that they were having were a direct result of them having God's covenant with Israel in their presence. So they sent it home on a cat on a cart pulled by two milk cows. The milk cows both had calves, and they left them pinned up, and the cows just walked off and left them. That's how you know it's from God, because cows don't walk off and leave their nursing calves. And the cows just walked off. When they got it back into Israeli territory, then these men took it off the cart and put it in the woods in somebody's house, and it stayed there all through the reign of Saul into the reign of King David. And... 
David goes, built a tabernacle for it and brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So the main part of the Old Testament tabernacle is at Shiloh, but the Ark of the Covenant is in this tent in Jerusalem. And David goes there to worship. He didn't go into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. The priests won't allow that, but they do allow him to come to the place, to the tent. And the servant said, how come you're not all upset like you were when the baby was sick? And he said, when the baby was just sick, I was praying that God might have mercy and allow the child to live. But now the baby's dead. There's nothing I can do about it. And I, he can't come back to me. God's not going to make him come alive again and, and bring him back to him. But I can go to him. I can go where that baby is. And David knew where he was going. He's going to heaven. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, the sins of there is italicized, meaning it's added by the translator, but it sounds perfectly reasonable and, and just as clear without it. It's propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What does that tell you? It doesn't tell you the whole world's going to get saved. What it tells you is the whole world can get saved. Not anybody in the world that cannot be saved as long as they're breathing. As long as they're alive, they can get saved. Two things are necessary. Number one, the Holy Spirit has to come and deal with them. They have to come to a, the knowledge of the gospel. The fact that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That's how people get saved. When they come to the knowledge of the, of, of the gospel and they receive Christ as personal Savior. They believe the gospel. That's what John keeps saying over and over again in the book of, in the gospel of John. He said, these things are written that you might believe. That you might believe. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He just keeps repeating this over and over. So the whole world can get saved. The whole world is not going to get saved because some people are just not going to believe the gospel. They think they can make it on their own. They think they can do it. They're doing okay. I mean, look at so-and-so. I'm a lot better than he is. You say, well, who are you better than? Actually, nobody. Okay? I have the exact seeds for sin in my heart that the worst criminal the world's ever seen had in his heart. Only difference is unforgiven. Wow. Verse 3. And hereby do we know that we know Him. Do you know that you know Him? Do you know that you know that you're saved? Do you know that you know that you know that you know that you're saved? Because you can know. That's what John keeps saying. You can know. You better know. Hereby do we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. That's one of the signs of being a Christian. You're obedient to the Word of God. You're obedient to God. You say, well, Brother Casey, I know some people who claim to be Christian who are not obedient to the Word of God. One of two things is going on there. Either they never got saved or they got saved 
and they have drifted away like the prodigal son. They're spending all of God's blessings in the world. And sooner or later, that's going to come to a stop. And God is either going, they're either going to come and respond to the Holy Spirit's wooing and, and ask forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, or God's going to say, my kids can't act like that and get by with it. We're going home. John chapter 5, John says, there is a sin unto death. I say not that you pray for them. You pray for folks who are living in sin. But the time comes when the Holy Spirit says, stop praying for them. God's going to take them home. He's going to kill them. It's going to be tragic. It's going to be a mess. God is very, very protective of His name. For the life of me, I would not want to be anybody associated with the History Channel who had a part in the documentary that's going to be on tomorrow night denying the truth of the Word of God. You don't mess with God's Word. You say, what's going to happen? I don't know. I do know God's judgment's coming. And I wouldn't want to be one of them. Hereby do we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. One of my least favorite memories from childhood is when I call Ron a liar. I don't know why it was always Ron, but we were always together, you know, 18 months apart. He's bigger than me. We ran together. We played together. We fought together. No, we fought against each other until we got to high school, and then we fought with each other. I fought on behalf of each other, but we were always together. And one day, I called him a liar. He said something that I didn't think was true. Whether it's true or not, I don't remember because I don't remember what he said. But I didn't think it was true at the time, and I called him a liar. And Mom heard me. We were outside. She was in the kitchen. Wow. She is there. Just poof. They didn't even have Star Trek when I was a kid. I don't know how she transported so quickly. But she was there. And she got me by the arm and she said, we're going to the bathroom. I followed her into the bathroom and she took that ivory soap. She soaked her hand up real good. I mean, it was clean. But it wasn't rinsed yet. And she started washing out my mouth and put those that soapy fingers all up in my mouth and around my tongue and on top of my tongue. And, and that soap taste is drifting down the back of my throat. And I'm thinking, I'm going to die here. Oh, please, no, no more, no more. And uh, finally she rinsed off her hand and she gave me a little cup and I filled it with water and rinsed it in my mouth and spit it out. And she said, now, do I need to see if there's any more words like that in your mouth? My response, of course, was, yeah, you better check. (laughs) No, I said, no, ma'am, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
But John says, if I say that I know him and I don't keep his commandments, I'm a liar and the truth is not in me. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily, truly, is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. The love of God's perfected in you. You're able to love others the way God loves you. Wow. That's cool. You know, that'll help make for a happy home when the husband loves the wife the way God loves him. Sure. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I think Ephesians says it, but the bride is always a her. And that's what John wants. He wants us to know that the love of God will be perfected in us. That's why parents can love kids that are not doing right. Just love them anyhow. I heard a man say one time, well, my daughter did this. In fact, he was a very, fairly famous pastor. His daughter was a pianist, an incredible pianist. And she wanted to use her talents in the world. So she got a job playing piano in a bar. And when she did, he said, I'm sorry, I love you, but you can't live in my house anymore. And he kicked her out. Packed up her stuff, set it on the porch, made her leave. And when he told that, I thought, did he love her enough before that for her to know that he was doing it in love? Because otherwise, she's going to think, Dad hates me. Okay. You say, okay, so what happened? Ten years went by. And one night he's sitting at home, reading the Bible, studying the Word, and the Holy Spirit convicts him that while he said he loved his daughter, he really didn't. Not the way God loved him. And so he got up and he went to the bar and he sat down at a table in the back of the bar They told him he had to buy something to drink if he's going to stay there, so he bought a Coke. And he stayed there three hours until she got finished playing the piano. She saw him in there. Her dad, a pastor, sitting in a bar, drinking Coke. When she finished playing, he went and hugged her. And said, I ask your forgiveness. I have not loved you like I said I did, like I should have. And she came home. You say, what happened after that? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that he demonstrated love to his daughter. After being separated from her for ten years, her thinking she could not come home, I told Jamie early on, I love you, and you know what I believe, and you know why I believe it, and you can do whatever you want to do in this world, 
but you can't do it while you live in my house. But anytime you change, you can come home. We'll always have a place for you. We'll always be waiting for you. And I will always love you. Joshua, on the other hand, got in this mess and was afraid to tell us. And I said to him, uh, why, are you, why were you afraid to tell us? And he said, I thought you wouldn't love me anymore. I said, I'm always going to love you. I don't love you anymore, but I don't love you any less either. We're always going to love you. You always have a place in our family. Last night I got home, and he and his wife and two kids were walking down the street. They had walked from their house eight-tenths of a mile. I timed it when I took them home because <laughs> it was pitch black. <laughs> I mean, it was dark and cold, so I took them home. But I, they walked over to the house, you know, such a joy, such a delight. He got ready to leave, and he said, he hugged my neck, and he said, I sure do love you. I said, I love you too. That's the kind of relationship I want to have with God. Okay? The kind of relationship that Jamie and Joshua have with me. They can get in my refrigerator anytime they want. They can take anything they want out of there. And they do. Okay? They do. I want my grandkids to feel exactly the same way. They can have anything they want. Because I want them to know I love them. Because God loves me just like that. And I don't think God has a refrigerator. But I go to him all the time and say, hey, could I have this? Could I have this? And he says, oh, sure. Here. I'll take care of you. So sweet. Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he, Jesus, walked. Are you walking like Jesus walked? You remember the uh, WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? The world kind of took that and made a thing out of it, a fad out of it. But that ought to be a question every Christian asks every time we get ready to do something. What would Jesus do? And then do what he would do. Really simplifies life. You know? It really simplifies life. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we love you so much. And we know that we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your watch care over us. Thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you that the love of God is manifested in us toward others because you love us so much. Dismiss us with your love. Bring us back safely on Wednesday. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory. Bless the, uh, the children in, their, in the children's program tonight. And bless the young people in their program. The Lord, use this to help them to understand the love of God through the lives lived before them by their teachers. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.